Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. What is the most fun thing to do? For Professor Kyle Beachy, it's skateboarding. In his memoir, The Most Fun Thing Dispatches from a Skateboard Life, Kyle explores what it's like to keep skateboarding after 40. In this week's episode, guest host Professor Andy Trees sits down with Professor Beachy to talk about his new book, What Skateboarding Has to Do with Marriage and Friendship how his body always hurts, and how differently he sees stairs than the average person. Kyle Beachy is an associate professor of English and creative writing at Roosevelt University. He co-hosts the skateboarding podcast Vent City with pro skater Ryan Lay. In addition to the most fun thing, Kyle is the author of The Slide, His work has also appeared in the Paris Review, Harvard Review, Thrasher Magazine, The Point, and Deadspin. Enjoy their conversation. I'm here with Kyle Beachy today. Very excited about this. Uh, skateboarder extraordinaire. I think he just missed the Olympics the last time around. And he's written a book, uh, The Most Fun Thing, which is about not just skateboarding, but about life, marriage, aging, all sorts of things. And also a professor at Roosevelt in the creative writing department. So I'm very excited to have him here. Welcome, Kyle. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, I'm going to just dive right in. Uh, you you look very young. I haven't asked your age, but uh, <laughs> skateboarding, you don't look mm. young enough to be a skateboarder. When I've mm. seen your pictures, you don't have the huge baggy pants. Is it unusual that you're still skateboarding at your age? You're still very young age. Uh, thank you for, you hedged very, very gently on on both fronts there about looking looking young and also looking old. And all, uh, I am a 43-year-old man. And I have I have a little click. I have a little cadre of um, upper thirties and into our forty year old colleagues, um, friends. Um, a little click that uh, we roll around together. So it's it's hard for me to say that I'm unique um, because you know I see these guys every weekend and we're mm-hmm. we're grown we're grown ups who are riding skateboards together. Which is you know if you're a grown up and you're going to ride a skateboard, you probably want to do it with people who are experiencing similar <laughs> aches and pains and limitations and so on. Um, but you know there's been there you know there there is a couple studies. There was a real notable study done recently out of the UK by a a colleague of mine named Dr. Paul O'Connor um, that showed some fairly convincing evidence that skateboarding among middle-aged practitioners can be a, an incredibly like valuable thing in terms of mental health and emotional mm-hmm. well-being and so on. So I think there, I think the sort of notion of skateboarding as uniquely a child's activity is is, is changing a little bit. Well, I should be asking you some deep philosophical questions, but I want to start with a very practical one. Please. I would be at any age, but especially as I've grown older, like I would be really worried about basically falling, which I mm. think probably happens for all skateboarders on a pretty regular basis if you're trying tricks yeah. and hurting myself, breaking a bone, tearing a ligament. So I'm just curious about the physical aspect of it. And, yeah. you know, do you do 
kind of less intense things or you're still like, oh, what the hell? I'm going to just give it a try. Uh, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's it's sort of a, a mixture of all of that. I mean, one thing that is true is that skateboarders, you learn how to fall, right? I mean, okay. any activity that comes with any sort of failure baked into it, you're going to you're going to get better at that failure, right? I mean, if that's if that's writing or being an artist, you're going to get better at having your work rejected. Or if it's, you know, if, if you are a Lothario and you're out there and you, you know, you, your goal is to be a romantic person, you're going to, you're going to become better at failing. I mean, anything. <laughs> so, you know, there are ways that, that I fall that certainly um, mitigates what, what for the, the sort of less seasoned skateboarder would be difficult. Right. I mean, we know how to fall and we fall all the time. Yeah. Um, and it's okay. It's not like earth shattering. You know, there's a, there's a sort of in skater joke about if, if a normal person, if you know what the sort of person I respectfully refer to as civilians, if a civilian were to take one of the falls that I take in a given week or month, you know, that would be a story they would tell for the next five years of their life. Oh, I took this incredible spill. Yes. So yeah, I mean, falling is part I'm of it. Guy. Right. Right. And, <laughs> and you should be like the human body shouldn't take these kind of falls. Um, but also, yeah, the other part of what you said, which is I'm not jumping down stair sets anymore. I'm not jumping onto handrails. A lot of that stuff is behind me. So, you know, you you sort of you you choose a different path. There's a lot of fun to be had uh, while remaining very close to the ground. So, you know, you you, you deal with two stairs instead of eight stairs, or you deal with a little parking block instead of a tall rail. And, you know, you can you can still have just as much fun. Well, you're tempting me now by skateboarding, but just to reaffirm my resolve, can you give me a litany of the injuries you've suffered in your skateboarding career? I want to hear about all the broken bones and, you know. You know, it, I actually, I've been really fortunate as far as broken bones go. I should be very, very cautious here speaking about this. Um, you know, the main thing for skateboarders my age is to have like the sort of slow burning accrued injuries. Like a lot mm. of people my age have very bad backs. I have a bad back. I have a left knee that, you know, I can do the thing where I know a storm is coming because it starts barking at me in the night and that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, most of the injuries I've had from skateboarding have been sprains, sprains and tweaks and like, you know, strains and so on. I have no feeling pretty much in my shins. I've like, I've killed all of the nerves in my shins. My elbows are covered in scars. But yeah, I, you know, for the most part, I've been really fortunate. I've, I've broken my collarbone, but that was actually technically a biking incident. Um, I've broken a small bone in both my hands, but that was actually snowboarding. So like skateboarding hasn't really done it in the same way that other sort of activities have. Uh, very impressive. You're clearly a very talented skateboarder. So I'm curious, mm. how early did you start and what, so what is it that clicked about skateboarding that you mm -hmm. this become this lifelong passion? Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, in a lot of sense, the what sort of drives the book that that I wrote is kind of this question. Uh, you know, the the sort of really basic, obvious interrogation of like, why am I still doing this? You know, th there are there are some key ways that it's it's been fairly bad for me, right? The physical side is <laughs> is pretty obvious. You know, it 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 stinks. It stinks to always have a scab on the exact same place in your lower back, right? Like, or on your elbow, it's, it stinks to look down and realize you're bleeding. It's tough when you've got a sprained wrist and you need to type 
and it's really hard to get your hand in the right place. So like there are all of these very obvious kind of physical arguments against it. And then there are the sort of bigger arguments against it. Like, you know, it is essentially a child's pursuit. When I was a younger person and engaged in the sort of socializing of trying to find my life partner, you know, it was a strange thing to the moment when it came to like, oh, I, sh- I should tell you perspective life partner. Like I, I spent a lot of time <laughs> riding a skateboard with other men who were my age and similarly affected by this strange kind of um, addiction. So, you know, it's, it, there, there are a lot of reasons to not do it. And because of those, you know, the kind of question of this book is like, well, what is it? Like, what is it that I'm getting from this? What is it that I've gotten from this since I was a child? I started riding a skateboard in 1986, I believe. I was eight years old, kind of in the post Back to the Future craze of the middle 80s. And yeah, like, you know, I'm sure why I do it now isn't exactly the same as why I wanted to keep doing it then. But I, I imagine that they're related. I imagine there's something that I'm finding in the, the activity that I continue to find nourishing and rewarding and joyful. So, you know, a lot of what the book is, is trying to gesture toward and pinpoint what exactly those joys and those pleasures are. So yeah, I mean, I could I could name them here, but you know, naming them would really it would sound like it would sound like any other activity. I would say like, "Oh, I I feel physically rewarded. I feel challenged by it. I I love that there is a thing that does, you know, really want to hurt me. I like that I'm sort of <laughs> toying with danger a little bit when I go out to do it." But also like, you know, on a on a basic level, I think for my mental health if I don't do it, um, I find myself squirming and I find myself beset by the kind of small day-to-day frustrations. Those just resonate with me in a very different way when I'm not on my skateboard. Like it provides for me a real balance and probably because it doesn't matter. You know, it is totally fanciful. It is a totally made up childish activity and there's, it's meaningless. And so to care about something meaningless in some key ways, I think, cuts against some of the rigors of, you know, the onslaught of day-to-day lived experience. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, I, I, so my own theory about it, so I, I played um, a sport in college and I've always been, like, I'm a racket and ball guy. Like, give me any racket and any ball, any sport, I love to play it. And, uh, and I thought as I got older, you know, that would sort of fade away. But if anything, I'm even more intensely engaged now. And my theory about it, which sounds somewhat similar to yours, is that you know, we live this kind of life of the mind and we work at university and that's great, but it's like sports are one of the few areas where I'm not in my head and it's more just about pure physical sensation. And also I think, you know, a lot of life is frustrations and difficulties or whatever and sports can be as well, but like there are moments in sports where you have these kind of, you 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 hit a shot or I'm sure you perform a trick or whatever, where it goes perfectly in a way that life almost never does. And it's really satisfying to have that, even though it means nothing and there's this inherent silliness. So I find even as I've grown older, in some ways I've come to care more about that and enjoy it more than I did even when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah, I think, no, I think I think you've, you've nailed something there. I guess the one thing I would add, particularly about skateboarding and this, I don't know if this is your relationship to racket sports, but the other thing for me that's really important is that it's not competitive. Um, mm-hmm. it's a very communal activity, right? The, when I, when I speak of this kind of 
clique of mid forties um, people that I go out skateboarding with, uh, the nature of our community is like 100% purely supportive, but there's still, I say that it's hundred percent supportive, but there is this sort of tint of it's not competition, but it is performance, right? Mm. Like it is about being seen achieving. It is about being seen failing. It is about the sort of support at times of failure and celebration at times of success. So th- there's also something that I think is really important about that that kind of symmetrical perceptive praxis. Like, you, you know, where the book kind of gets its most philosophical is when I start talking about where really does skateboarding begin and end and how much of my life and my perception as I move through the world, the way that I see the world has been informed by these 30 plus years of riding around on a board with wheels on it. Mm. Yeah, uh, that's very interesting. It's a little different for the drag sports because there usually is a competitive element, but it's like because we're playing for fun, really, there are no stakes. Like it's competitive in what I would say a highly social way. Like yeah. it sort of brings you closer, even though technically you're competing and you can make fun of each other in ways that you wouldn't do in real life. And there's kind of a, a social aspect to it that I really enjoy and that I think kind of helps you know, especially I think I don't want to gender stereotype here, but men in general, I think are, are worse at kind of like maintaining long term friendships. But sports I found is one great way that I'm able to do that, you know, better maybe than I used to be. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that. I mean, one of the one of the ways that this project has the writing about skateboarding specifically writing about it per se has kind of pushed me in my interest going forward is really I, I'm very curious about friendship and I'm particularly curious about friendship among grown men, right? I mean, you know, we, the the sort of the notion of a crisis of masculine friendship, I think is something that's getting a little bit of play in the last few years. And, you know, there are some, you know, the conversations about kind of extremism and, and what, why it is that some of these people take to conspiracy theories or, or what we might call sort of parasocial online experiences, you know, have a lot to a lot of the theorizing behind that has to do with the sort of what's missing in terms of support structures for for grown masculine mm-hmm. uh, individuals. And so, you know, one of the things that skateboarding, the skateboarding research and study and writing about it has done is kind of kicked me into this new interest of like, man, what is going on with friendship? Like, what is the nature of friendship that I've had through skateboarding? Because I know it's unique, you know, like I know that getting together to go to a warehouse on a Sunday afternoon in the middle of Niles, you know, and like (laughs) driving through the snow to be in this dusty warehouse for two and a half, three hours is not something that, you know, most, uh, most people my age find themselves doing. So yeah, there, there are more questions I suppose to be asked about all of it. Yeah. I think I, I totally can see that. You know, I think about that book that came out, I don't know, it was a couple of decades ago, probably now bowling alone uh, about the kind of loss of all these, social activities that people used to do, I think particularly men, right, in a way that I think was really healthy, to put it in grand terms, right, even healthy kind of in a civic sense and in a basic sort of democratic norm sense. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think we really lost it. The sort of disembodied life online encouraged you to present a very different type of self and relate Mm -hmm. differently to people than actually interacting with them in the way you do in skateboarding or on a court or whatever. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious, so your book, uh, the most fun thing, it's, I forget the whole subtitle, but it talks about marriage and life. It seems like skateboarding maybe provides a through line for your kind of philosophy of life or a way to live. So I'm curious, 
You want to lay some wisdom down on the listeners about <laughs> what uh, skateboarding has taught you about how to live? You know, I, I yeah, I sure, yeah, I'll, I'll try. I think the th- the thing to start with is that I don't know necessarily that everything I say about skateboarding is necessarily specific to skateboarding. I mean, mm-hmm. one thing you know that's that sort of served as the the kind of catalyst for writing with such depth about this is because I don't think there's anything that's been in my life as long really as skateboarding has aside from I say somewhere in the book responding to the name Kyle Beachy like <laughs> and you know being the son of these two particular parents and so on like I've skateboarded more than I've done anything hmm. and so you know the, the real the you know what I would hope is universal about the book and I and I do I do hope that there's there is plenty in the book for non-skateboarders. One of one of the kind of more universal kind of questions is is like, you know, what 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 are we if <laughs> what are the activities that define us and how do we relate to those activities in ways that opens us up to new experiences and how do those kind of close us down? And one of the things that I find is that skateboarding generally speaking for me has been a process of opening. Um mm. and I think by looking at it in kind of this, this trying to look at it in a kind of detached way, trying to be somewhat objective about my relationship to it, what I've ended up finding is that, you know, it has a lot to tell me about what I value, where I find meaning, and, you know, what kind of person I really am. And so in that sense, you know, maybe the wisdom that it, it can share or that skateboarding or writing can share for me is it did help me really it helped me understand wh- what it means for me to be half of a lifelong partnership, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, my the book is not shy in in addressing some of some of the kind of fiercer challenges that my wife and I have faced. Um, we've now been married seven years, as of a week ago, and so you know th- those early stages of marriage present some very real challenges. I mean, anyone who's been married knows that. Um, Our particular challenges are also rooted in the fact that we don't have children. Um, We don't plan to have children. And, you know, that for us raises some questions about like, well, okay, well, what exactly is a marriage? Hmm. What is the family unit? How does our marriage open itself up to encapsulate the things that I want to do on a skateboard that I want to do as a writer and a developing artist. And then of course, what my wife wants to do in her own sort of versions of those activities. And so, yeah, I know I, I, what I can't do is drop wisdom on you actually, but what I can say is that, (laughs) you know, a lot of times it seems to me that the tools we have for understanding the biggest challenges in our life are actually the things that we might take for granted, right? Like, skateboarding is is so obvious in my life it would be very easy for me to not look closely at it and so you know there's a big thread in this book about the obvious and about what the value of the obvious thing is yeah. sorry that doesn't answer your question well, i really I like that actually because i do think i mean you're I, you're taking this kind of a zen direction which i really like which is i think that we over time even things we love right mm-hmm. you tend to take them for granted and mm-hmm. just see them as part of your life and kind of just not interrogate them or really think about why you do them and those sorts of things. I think it's, I mean, you're basically talking about bringing this kind of approach to the world where you're not just open, but kind of curious and questioning and like, yes, I love, why do I love skateboarding? What am I getting of? I think it's, I think it's a great way to sort of be, you know, thoughtful about your life as opposed to just kind of getting in these routines and and it's like, 
Oh, well, it's been a good life. I wish I should have thought some more about why I was doing these things. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, one of the sort of the, the basic truths and, and, you know, people who think about skateboarding and have spoken about skateboarding, which, you know, we should be clear here. Skateboarding is about, is, is about 65 years old, right? I mean, this is, this is a very young activity. Um, the origins of the activity are, are kind of mysterious, but we have a sense that it, it happened on the West Coast of the United States of America sometime in the, or the middle sort of 1950s. I feel like um, this is, it all comes out of California, right? I mean, I feel like everything, you know, Frisbee, hula hoop, like and you trace it all. It all goes back to California at some point. Yeah, no, it is. And they've been riding that for 60 years now. And they're just, you know, <laughs> um, so, so, you know, one thing is that it is a fairly, it is a fairly young thing. The other thing is that it is a, it was for a long time, a pretty purely American thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, one, one of the sort of corollaries to skateboarding as an activity that, that people started recognizing, you know, into the, the sort of early seventies when it really became, you know, there's this sort of era of the Dogtown and the Z boys mm-hmm. um, of like, you know, leather jackets, punk rock attitude, you know, really skateboarding as counterculture. One of the main arguments of that counterculture, um, as was written by a guy named Craig Stesick III, um, was, you know, some fairly convincing statements about skateboarders viewing the world differently. And really, for the last 50 years, that's been a kind of constant thing that's become a little bit cliche among skaters. But the fact is, man, like when I walk through the loop in downtown Chicago, like I am seeing that space differently than my colleagues who, you know, we're going to lunch together. Like the fact is, is that I see stairs differently. I see, um, I see this slightly angled retaining wall differently than you do. Like I think of what could be done on it. I think of a litany of things that has been done on it. And, you know, to, to think that that doesn't affect my perception of the world would be, um, you know, kind of bonkers. So, you know, I think we all, to a certain extent, have something like that. You know, I have a friend who's a tree doctor. And to walk with him through Logan Square and have him point out to me like, oh, look, this tree is sick. And, you know, we walk over and that sort of expertise has just radically shifted the way he moves through the world, what sort of information he takes away from it. And so we all have that in some sense. We all have some version of expertise or some version of practiced awareness that informs the way we see the world. It's just that with skateboarding, you know, what I see is the shape of the city, the shape and the texture of the streets and the sidewalk and so on. I think that's so cool. It's like you've got this action movie unfolding your mind all the time. You're like, oh, you could do that trick there. I could just slide down there. I mean, that's that's actually a really fun way to see. It's like the world becomes your playground, right? Everything's a potential place to skateboard and do something. It is. I mean, I I think you nailed it there. And, you know, as someone who teaches art and creative writing, theoretically, that's how the world should be for every single poet, right? Mm. I mean, that's how, that's what human relationships are for those of us who work in the humanities, right? Like everything we see, every interaction between people, every sentence we read, you know, like all of this stuff starts jumping out at you. The if you are kind of tr- training your attention in, in whatever direction. So I'm curious, uh, you talked about skateboarding as a counterculture sport, and now it is an Olympic sport. Yeah. And first of all, it cracked me up to see it as an Olympic sport. And then all the people who I think won medals, they were so young. They were like, mm-hmm. you know, 
12, 14, 16. They were incredibly young. So uh, how, how do you feel about that, that it's gone from this counterculture sport to really, in some ways, I mean, as always happens with the counterculture, being co-opted by the mainstream yeah. and now receiving kind of the ultimate uh, kind of imprimatur of respectability in being an Olympic sport? Yeah. I mean, w- what I will say is that it was hard. I think, you know, I didn't take it very well. That's what um, I would have thought. Like, you'd be like, what are you doing for the sport? Give it back to me, you corporate. <laughs> well, I mean, the good news is that the corporations actually came in long before the Olympics did, right? I mean, Nike right. went, once Nike got involved and succeeded, because they were rebuffed a couple of times, once, once Nike succeeded in making inroads to the skateboarding culture and really, it really eliminated a lot of that sort of core mindset that for many, many years did define what skateboarding subculture was. You know, one of the things about any sort of subculture like that, that sees itself as a, as, as subversive or what have you, um, there, there are going to be elements of gatekeeping in place. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that the last 10 years of skateboarding has shown us is that, gosh, that gatekeeping has actually been incredibly unhealthy in terms of who feels comfortable, who feels safe doing this activity, who this activity speaks to, and who is able to kind of reap the rewards of skateboarding, the psychological, emotional, physical Mm -hmm. rewards of it and financial for that matter. And so, you know, you did see it open up in the last 10 years. So at a certain point, it became totally, totally obvious and natural that the Olympics would be part of it. What I will say is that what has already kind of been made clear with the gold medal winner being 14 and the silver medal winner being 13, you know, children um, is that it's there, there will now be a, a, a branch of skateboarding that is competitive that branch of skateboarding will for me be by far the least interesting branch Mm -hmm. of skateboarding there is. And that's okay. You know, like the people who are going to commit their lives to skateboarding as an athletic pursuit are hopefully going to have experiences on skateboards that have nothing to do with athletics. Um, Right. But you know, it's, it is, it's, it's like tumbling. It's like gymnastics. It's, it's spinning, it's flipping, it's, it does some very real kind of um, sublime. It requires sublime physical movement. So, yeah. yeah, if the rest of the world can see that and and appreciate it, then God bless. You're listening to and Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. Well, and you, you don't have to answer this in the context of skateboarding, but you also, you're a, a writer, published a lot of things beyond this book. So I'm curious, is there a connection between skateboarding and writing, or would you rather just talk about writing without the context of skateboarding uh, present? Well, I don't, skateboarding doesn't really play too much of a factor in the way that I teach writing, right? Like skateboarding doesn't find a way into my writing classroom for the most Mm -hmm. part with the sort of asterisk there being, well, skateboarding has made me exactly into who I am. As I said, it's, it's done more for me than anything else. So probably I am carrying something of the spirit of it into the classroom. Probably more to the point for me, what skateboarding has, has served for me, particularly in the last 10 years, which, you know, in addition to, encountering some the challenges of a new marriage and transitioning from being friends with a person to being uh, the spouse of a person. Uh, the other thing, the other real challenge of the last 10 years for me has been writing a second novel. You know, it's, mm. it's a kind of famously difficult thing to do among writers, right? Like your second book is the hardest one. And, and for me, it, it was indeed very, very, very challenging. And a lot of what I found in 
using the skateboard writing, the nonfiction writing, the memoir writing of what became this book, the most fun thing was it gave me a real new way to understand the nature of the darkness and the challenges that I was facing with the other book. And so in a certain sense, I had to look again at what skateboarding asks of me and realize, all right, well, what is different about what writing is asking of me? Like, why is writing managing to make me so miserable? Like, what, why exactly are the struggles of writing so hard, given that I do this thing all the time that hurts me, that I fall, that I bleed, that I conk my head, that I, you know, limp around for a month? Why is it that writing is getting to me in this way? And, you know, what I ended up doing was learning to treat writing more like I treat skateboarding. And again, that should have been obvious, right? Like that's that's one of these very obvious, like, well, of course you should. If if you've got this this healthy physical practice that that brings you joy, why not bring that to other parts of your life? But I for a long time I didn't. Like I held creative writing and art making in this sort of separate zone. And, you know, over time I kind of realized that that was, that was harmful for me. So I've, I've allowed skateboarding to inform more of my writing than ever before. That is some real wisdom that I'm going to take to heart because I also like to think of myself as a writer and it's mainly suffering, right? I mean, I don't, yeah. you know, people say like, oh, you must do it because it's fun. I'm like, no, that's clearly right. not why I do it. Right. Right. And we do. And, you know, at a certain point, you find yourself kind of talking that up. You know, writers love to talk about how hard what we do is. And it is. It's super hard. But I mean, frankly, it's not harder than skateboarding. Yeah. Like, and and why why can I fail for hours on a skateboard and keep going and not not worry and not get down on myself and not feel like a failure? Right. How can you actually legitimately fail without feeling like a failure. Because one yeah. of those is perfectly wonderful and healthy. Failure is healthy and good for us. Feeling like a failure is just the worst and the opposite. Yeah. So you got to find a way to be able to live amongst failure, to be in and surrounded by failure without ever feeling like you yourself are a failure. And that's that's a real tightrope to walk. But I think skateboarding um, has a lot to teach us about that. That's interesting. I'm gonna have to. That's that's really something I'm gonna have to think about in my life. Because you know, I I mean, as a guy who plays racket sports, there are times I go out and I play terribly or yeah. whatever, and I lose. And but I mean, I, I have fun. I don't think like, oh, I wish I didn't play. I'm so that's I wish I didn't do that because I didn't play right. well. And like, it's just fun. I'm, I don't I don't invest any like ego in it. But with writing, if I write, but it's a terrible day, and I think what I write stinks, I'm like, then it becomes these much more existential questions. Right. What am I doing? Why do I even call myself a writer? The whole failure thing, right? It kind of becomes overwhelming in a way. I think I need, we, maybe we should do a couple of sessions together. You can help me get past <laughs> we, we can do it. I mean, it, it really is, man. I, I can't, I can't stress this enough. Like there are, you know, I don't, as, as someone who studies narrative, I am aware of the epiphany as trope, right? I am aware of the, the notion of a sudden realization where everything really falls into place. And I recognize that there is an artificiality to that sort of construct that mm -hmm. in fact, actually what we learn takes a lot of time and it's gradual and it's, you know, a, a battle of attrition and so on. Um, but there, there really was a moment and, and I can kind of pinpoint even where I was sitting where 
some very old advice really kind of came through to me that someone, you know, someone says a thing and you live with it for a while, but then on one day it sort of clicks. And there really was a moment when I realized like, I can't keep writing in this way. If I keep Mm. writing in this way, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, uh, it's going to be destructive and I can't maintain a destructive practice. And then, you know, the thing clicked and I realized like, oh my God, I don't, I don't have to be so hard on myself. (laughs) You know, like that's it. Like one can, one can fail and fail and fail and fail. But as long as one sees oneself as, as needing that failure or wanting that failure or growing from that failure, it's great. And the second truly we start to see ourselves as the failure is the second that you got to, you got to step away. Yeah. Yeah. Because that is so counterproductive. Mm hmm. Well, so uh, being a writer, how early did you know that? Like, what drew you into that, and and kind of shaped that? So, I, I didn't I didn't start doing any creative writing until after college. I didn't take any creative writing classes as an undergrad, but I I had always known that I like sentences and I like writing sentences. I, I didn't really ever think of it as an end in itself. I always saw it as a means to some other thing. I, I wrote my first work of short fiction the summer after college. And then I very quickly decided like, well, I would like to write a novel. And then, you know, I spent about seven years writing that. So, you know, after, after I graduated from my undergrad and, and spent some time out in the world and then decided to come to Chicago to get my MFA up the street at the school of the art Institute. Then it was sort of like, okay, I'm, I'm sort of doing this now. You know, you kind of find yourself deep enough in a thing and you realize like, Oh, I better, I suppose I better keep doing this. So yeah, you know, I started writing short fiction and then I wrote a novel and, you know, along the way I kind of toyed with essays. And I think I found really in writing this new book that I, I really do have a, a, a kind of vein of my process that, is is very well suited for writing nonfiction. So mm-hmm. I imagine I will continue doing that. However, that balance works out between writing novels and writing book length works of nonfiction. You know, you the the challenge eventually becomes a, a, a kind of matter of like real cost or opportunity cost. Like what what am I working on and what does that mean I'm not working on? Right. So, right. You, there are only so many books in a lifetime. You like yeah. you're making choices all the time about what is the work that is most important to you. Yeah, that's it. I mean I'm I'm very fortunate this semester, in fact, that my schedule lines up that all my classes are on Monday and Tuesday. So I actually have this sort of stretch after my classes to to have some periods of of good creative work. Because mm-hmm. it's you know it's hard. I mean it's hard. It's hard to get creative work done when all of your energy is going into students and their work and so on. So, yeah. to to get anything done during the semester feels like a kind of a luxury. But I think I've got a, a good balance of it now. What's your typical? What's your writing day or writing process? How do you when you're working working on a project? I wake up early. So I what I've realized is a day where I can have two sort of distinct windows of writing time is exponentially more valuable to me than. Uh, even if the the writing window is long, um, mm-hmm. it's always better for me to have two distinct times. So okay. what I have is a morning, I wake up, I get out of bed at 6.30 in the morning, and then I have about until probably about 6.30 until 8.30 before the dog needs to go out. So I, I, I steal two hours in the very early morning. Um, and then you know, sometime in the afternoon, sometime in the evening, I get back and find another hour. So 
that that's pretty much it. You know, that, mm-hmm. that second hour ends up being again, really load bearing, even if it's shorter, even if not a lot gets done, just knowing there is another time in the day, mm-hmm. I'll be able to come back to it. You know, so much of this stuff is tricking yourself, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, taking a little pressure off yourself, putting a little pressure on yourself. Like, you know, it's, it's a very fragile thing and you want to, you want to be able to normalize it and make a routine out of it as much as you can. So I, I think that's right. You know, a lot of people when they ask about writing a book, like I think we all suffer from various aspects of procrastination and especially like a book where there's no deadline and it's all kind yeah. of, you know, it, whatever you set for yourself, it's unless you develop those routines, a lot of time could go by without a lot of work. getting Yeah. Done. <laughs> yeah. You wake up and suddenly it's been five years on a book. And you think, <laughs> yeah, exactly. My goodness. What um, have I been doing? <laughs> but it's interesting. Like that's so much, I mean, so much of this is actually practicing the things that I speak of in the classroom, you know, so much. So I'm teaching a, a fiction writing, a fiction workshop, an undergrad fiction writing class, CRWR 250. So a 200 level class, it's a small class. And, you know, all basically the first two weeks of this semester, what we've been talking about is how to establish a writing habit. Like, Mm. how do we make writing something that we are, we view as a kind of daily routine? Like, that's it, you know, because among the other things that university, four years of university in the U.S. does is it, it, it stills a certain kind of relationship to writing, right? I mean, mm-hmm. a student is given, we need six to eight pages. Student right. stays up the night before, you know, right. has assembled their research and they hit five and a half pages and they're like, print, done, wash your hands of this story. Um, and, you know, so a lot of what what my class aims to do is really break that habit and and make clear, like, you know, writing writing can be an outlet writing can be like going for a walk in the city. Like if, if we do normalize it and routinize it, um, it doesn't need to be the sort of task you have to sit down to, to produce the thing that you submit that you can be graded on and so on. Like, you know, you have to work, I think, to break a lot of those habits. And, you know, as I started by saying, like, I need those reminders too, you know, that, that actually this is, it's about process. And you have to learn, as we talked about, like it has to, you have to learn to make it an enjoyable process or you're not going to, it's not going to be established. You're not going to, it's not going to become routine. It's going to be sort of a constant struggle. Yeah. And you know, and I'm always thinking about people who run, like I, I hate running. I hate running. I do too. I really dislike it. (laughs) And yeah, aside from what it does to my knees, I just get so bored. But you know, the thing that I have to accept is that there are people who legitimately love it and who love it and they would not be out running if they didn't really love it. And so, yeah, writing, writing's got to be that, you know, you've got to, you've got to find a way to love it. Otherwise you're just going to be just, just causing harm. So happy. Uh-huh. <laughs> so uh, tell me about uh, the journey that brought you to Roosevelt University. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I came to Chicago in 2003 uh, to pursue my MFA at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Um, and that was a two-year program. And I managed to get a TA position while I was there, um, which meant that I was actually teaching first year seminar classes during my second year as a grad student. And then from there, I very kind of fortunately fell into a part-time teaching job at Loyola um, because they had, they in fact had a real rush of students in the, I guess, 2000, the fall of 2005. 
because a guy named Bill won a show called The Apprentice, just hosted by this fella named Donald. That um, rings a bell. It rings a bell. Right. I- and so Bill, Bill, who, you know, is his as first victor of the apprentice, he got to like design the Trump tower that's in the Chicago loop. He was an, he was a Loyola grad. So when he won the reality show, they had this rush of new applications. And so they needed new first year seminar student or teachers. So I fell into a job there. And what I won't do is say that I, that means I owe Donald Trump anything. Yes. But I find anyway. it on some level as a professor deeply distressing right. that winning the apprentice <laughs> and being from senior university can drive enrollment. That just that that really I'm gonna try to forget I ever heard that. Yeah. Uh, uh so in any case, they needed <laughs> some teachers and I got a job there. And I got into, you know, what is essentially the adjunct hustle, which is, you know, you're essentially a bounty hunter and you take whatever jobs you can find around the city. And Chicago has a whole lot of schools. And so, you know, I taught at Loyola. I taught at the Art Institute. I taught at the Graham School for Continuing Ed, which is the sort of continuation school of the University of Chicago. And then I got a part-time job here at Roosevelt. Um, I was hired by Scott Blackwood, uh, who brought me on as a visiting professor. He was the director of the MFA program in 2008 or nine. I guess it was 2009. I had just published my first novel. And so I came as a one-year appointment as a visiting. And then there was a line for a tenure track position. And I put my name into that hat and I ended up getting the job. And that was 2010 Hmm. or 2011. Well, so now you're a seasoned hand, well over a decade under your belt, which is hard to believe since you're only 24 years old. But um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious, you know, I hear you, you get the endless debate, right? You know, creative writing or MFA programs or whatever, they're really helpful. They can, you know, teach you whatever. And then you get other people say, you, you can't teach writing, right? You, you, you're, you, know, you either have the voice, you don't have the voice. So uh, clearly you're teaching it. You feel like you can't teach it. You've talked about routine. Like what are some of the ways I know, especially teaching something like creative writing is very tricky, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's not as straightforward as having kind of a body of material, right? I teach political science and, and history and it's, there's kind of set things you're going to talk about. How do you, what's your approach to try to help people unlock the writer within or however you put it? I mean, a lot of what I find, um, because you're right, you know, there is, there is no one-to-one sense of here's how you make a writer. And I think any, any sort of system that would claim to do that would just be pure folly. Um, and you know, there, there are some models of how, you know, quote unquote, the MFA works, right? I mean, whenever you see debates about advanced degrees in creative writing, it's always the MFA, mm-hmm. um, which is a little insulting to those of us who teach programs that aren't rooted in the Iowa workshop model. And, you know, we have workshops at Roosevelt, my colleague, Christian Tabordo and I, and the other part-time faculty who teach at Roosevelt, teach our graduate workshops, teach them very, very differently. And we all teach, we all have very different teaching philosophies. Mm-hmm. And so to speak of it as this kind of singular monolithic thing, the, the MFA always feels a little silly. I mean, primarily, it seems to me that the best thing to develop for anyone who wants to be a writer, whatever their age, is curiosity. And that means in some key ways, learning to read differently. I mean, that Mm. means learning to engage works of fiction and poetry and screenplays and whatever the document is, learning to come at it with a certain openness. And it's an openness that is, you know, at its core, kind of a balance between total empathy and selfishness, you know, like the 
the aspiring writer needs to be constantly sort of on the lookout, like kind of pirating, kind of scavenging for things that work. But, it, you know, kind of beneath even that is coming to a text with a certain kind of openness. And, you know, I don't, I, I hesitate to make sweeping declarations about how the world has changed, but it does seem to me that in the last kind of 10 to 20 years, we've, we've kind of instilled some habits of reading that I, I think have been restrictive. And so, you know, a lot of, a lot of the reasons why people turn to books and why people turn to films and film narrative, a lot of those, a lot of those kind of purposes overweight the kind of selfishness people want to see themselves in a story. And so a lot of what we do in our, in the MFA program is kind of open ourselves up to like, well, okay, what is this, what is this text trying to do? Mm-hmm. Right. Because it's not all the same. And the second we start thinking that books should go a certain way or stories should be written a certain way or writing should be taught a certain way is the second that we foreclose on a whole lot of opportunities. So, you know, a lot of what we do is practice a certain kind of openness and a certain kind of curiosity that balances with this sort of artistic selfishness. And mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it, I mean, you nailed it. It's tricky. It's hard. I mean, a lot of what we end up having conversations about is like, how does this make us feel and why, and where is that feeling coming from? But you know, if we're not feeling anything from the text and this is a book that's existed for a hundred years or whatever, then we need to, we need to be able to ask like, why is that? And what what might I be bringing that is for not always blame the book. Sometimes be like, what's, where's my block that I'm not. Yeah. Right. So yeah, I mean that's that that gets at such a tiny amount of what we actually the work we do with MFA students, but I think it starts there. I mean, I think a lot of it starts with reading as a creative act. Hmm. Well, Kyle, this makes me want to be a student in your creative writing class. No, so come on through, man. You're, you're, you're welcome. Semester. You're welcome. You wouldn't be the first. We had the former uh, chair of psychology end up taking one undergraduate fiction course and then sticking around and getting his entire MFA degree. So, Well, I was only half joking. Now I'm only a quarter joking. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, Kyle, I have to say it has truly been a great pleasure talking today. Everyone should go out. I'm going to make it. I'm putting it on my summer reading list. Everyone should go read The Most Fun Thing. It sounds fantastic. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much for talking with me today and for sharing your thoughts with the Roosevelt community. Thank you for having me. It's been a joy. Cheers. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening.